Okay, good morning, everyone. I want to thank our sponsors this morning for the uh, sponsorship of the Parsha class, the Schreier family, in commemoration of the Yeretz of Maxine and Bernard Sullivan and their beloved parents, grandparents and great-grandparents, and in memory of their beloved uncle Lester Friedman, and by Murray and Faye Eisenberg and family, Akar Satov Tashem, for all the brachos, Rafuos and Yeshuos they have received. Our learning of Torah should be Le'ili Nishmas, those for whom it was dedicated, and in gratitude together with the Eisenbergs, we should all receive brachos, Rafuos and Yeshuos. Okay, Parsha's bow. Also, a big thank you to those who joined, the Friends of BRS. We appreciate your cooperating with the campaign, and we appreciate your support to enable all these uh, and programs learning. One of you will walk away the lucky winner of the gift card. Each week, the people who join that week will be entered into a raffle for that week. So your chances are very high. It's worthwhile to join. And uh, please, God, you'll make that money right back. And if not, you make the schuyos in shamayim of supporting Torah learning. And you get the privilege of coffee and tea next week. So who wouldn't want that, that privilege? Good seats, coffee and tea, it just doesn't get better than that. If that's not incentive to join, I don't know what is. Parsha's bow. Parsha's bow. The donuts. We'll have to raise the price if you want the donuts. Okay, again, a reminder, please silence your cell phones or turn them to vibrate. Parsha's bow is in the Arscroll Stone, Chumash, page 340. We began the plagues last week, and we gave an introduction to the plagues. We referenced the idea of the plagues are a curriculum. Paro says, Lo Hashem. I never met Hashem. I don't know who He is. You came, you here to represent Him. I don't know who you're talking about. And God says, you don't know who I'm talking? You don't know who I am? Laman da. Over and over and over again, the word we find throughout Vaira Bo, these parshios of the Makos is, God says, you don't know who I am? You never met me? Allow me to introduce myself. Ten times and in ten different ways. And the Kliyakar says that Rabbi Yehuda's introduction of breaking the ten plagues into three groups, each of the three groups represents a curriculum of three different lessons that are being taught to the Paro, to, paro, to the Mitzrim, and as, or more importantly, to the Jewish people, to us as well, to never live life. Going through the motions externally, there are a whole world of people who are observant of halacha, who keep Shabbos and kosher, who daven three times a day, who attend the dafyomi, who give tzedakah, who are friends of BRS, who do everything right, and yet, lo yadas Hashem. Their life, though externally, is going through all the motions of a religious lifestyle, but internally, to have a familiarity, to have a sense of, of love, of closeness, of intimacy, of affection, to know there's a Hashem in our lives, and to feel and realize that He's the one controlling our lives, we too needed those makos. It's a famous Ramban on our parsha, which we're not getting into today. The famous Ramban talks about Nisa, miracles, revealed miracles and hidden miracles, and these parshios are the source and the core for miracles. It's a fundamental disagreement between the Ramban and the Rambam about do we believe in miracles. The Rambam says we don't believe in miracles. Everything has to be explainable within the natural order. Hashem operates within the natural order. And in order to be rational uh, beings, we need to live in this world and be able to explain everything away. The moment that we see the supernatural, the moment that nature is suspended, then God has revealed Himself. We don't have free will. Where the Ramban says, no, we believe in miracles. And this parsha is the long Ramban in our parsha. This is the source of our belief in miracles. Hashem didn't simply create a world and deposit us in it and then withdraw from it. He continues to intervene and intercede. He continues to be involved, to be our companion, our confidant, our mentor, to be our helpmate, our support system. He's with us every single step of the way. And how do we know that? The Makos. 
One time in history, God, the ten plagues, the splitting of the sea in Harsinai, that collective experience, that collective sequence of revelation, which was unprecedented and since then has been unparalleled. Kodesh Baruch Hu did with such pomp and circumstance, so that for all time and in perpetuity, we could look back and say that we too, we too are the recipients of divine providence. Hashem didn't just orchestrate events then, He continues to orchestrate events now. I had a shir earlier this morning, a small group that I learned with, and there was a whole debate. One person yesterday almost had a hole in one and showed us the picture of him where the ball was right on the outside of the cup and said, thank God, Hashem is amazing, Hashem loves me, look, I almost had this hole in one. If Hashem really loved him, it would have been a hole in one. But Hashem, Hashem likes him a lot, let's just say. So the other person said, you think God is involved in your golf shot? You think God cares where your golf ball ended up? God has nothing better or more important to do. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world today. There's a lot of swamps to clean up all over the world today. There's a lot of challenges going on. You think Hashem has nothing better to do than to manage your golf ball? So we had a whole discussion. A whole discussion. And while I understand and can even identify with the person who thinks Hashem is so great that you think He cares about the golf ball, to a certain degree that's a form of heresy. It's a form of kafirah. To think God is so great that He doesn't have time for the little things is actually to diminish God, not to admire His greatness. In fact, the Ribbon Shalom is so great that He can care both about the big things and the little things at the same time. Kresh Baruch cares about our gavsha. Now this is a much bigger and broader topic, not for now. How does divine providence work? The Rambam, for example, holds that Hashem relates to us in our lives directly proportional to our amuna and bitachon in Him. The more righteous you are, the more you believe in Him, the more He is orchestrating our lives. And the more withdrawn from Him you are, and the less you see Him, believe in Him, trust in Him, then the more He pulls back and exposes you to the elements and allows nature to take its course. So when you say, divine providence, hashkacha pratis, is Hashem involved in every detail of our lives, we have conflicting mamari chazal, one place in the Gemara Vodazara says, you put your hand in your pocket to pull out a quarter and you pulled out a dime, that was Hashem. Person can't stub his toe milamata, and it's not ordained milamala. Everything that happens is from Hashem. And the other, we have the notion of Hashkach Klawas. Hashem is kind of it's got an overview of the world, but to that degree of detail. So the Rambam would say, yeah, it depends on who you are, your merits, and your righteousness. If in fact your level of amun bitachon is so strong, then Hashem will interfere in your life. But if you've withdrawn, and we understand that if Hashem is avinu shemayim, if Hashem, this is not at all the parsha class. I got to get to the parsha class. <laughs> The are among my favorite subjects because I need to work on it. So I love to talk about it. So, one, 30 more seconds. But we understand that, that if Hashem is Avinu Shabbat if Hashem is our Father, we know that as parents, the children who call on us and turn to us and lean on us and ask us for our help and check in with us and are very involved in our lives, we're very involved in theirs. And the child who says, leave me alone, leave me be, I got it, I don't want your advice, I don't want your help, we pull back and we say, no problem, you don't need my help, you don't need my advice. Good luck, enjoy, God bless. So Hashem says to us, you don't need me, you don't acknowledge me, you don't thank me, you don't recognize me, you don't see me, no problem. Good luck, here's the world, enjoy. Here's nature, I said it in motion 6,000 years ago, enjoy. So the Rambam says that there's a direct relationship, it's proportional to Ramun and Bitachon, and the Ramban and others fundamentally disagree, and it's based on our parsha. Why am I bringing all this up? As an introduction, a continuation from Va'era, really segueing us into parsha's bow. 
that the makos are not just so that we have some entertainment Seder night. The makos are not just pomp and circumstance. Hashem was trying to overwhelm us and impress us. No, the makos are a curriculum. They are an education. Lest we ever think that we are abandoned. Lest we ever think that we live in a world of randomness and chance and happenstance. Lest we ever think that there's no meaning or purpose or order or design to the universe. Reread Parsha's bow. And remember that just as Hashem did then, and that's why we have a mitzvah to remember Zohar every single day. During the day, at night, Balelos, even when it's dark, even when Hashem feels hidden, even when nothing makes sense, remember, says Hashem, I took you out of Egypt. And just like I was present there, I'm present in your lives. This is why, fast forward a couple weeks, Pasha's Yisra, the Kuzari says, why do the... Why does the Decalogue, why does the, why do the Ten Commandments begin? I'm the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Says Rabbi Yudalei, the Kuzari, the Ibn Ezra quotes that Kuzari. They might have been cousins, they might have been related other ways, there's a debate. But the Ibn Ezra quotes this Kuzari. Rabbi says, why does God introduce himself? I'm the Lord your God, I took you out of Egypt. That's not the most impressive thing he's ever done. What's even more impressive that he's done? Creation. Among the few Latin words that all Jews know, ex nihilo. God created the world something from nothing. Ex nihilo. Something from nothing. Yesh me'ayim. When we create, we get a head start. You get to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and get the materials. <laughs> if you create a human being, we get a head start. We have the ingredients implanted within us. So, Kurdish Baruch Hu says, that's nice, but you got the head start. I get to create. I know how to create. I created something from nothing. There was vast nothingness. And I created something. That is the most impressive thing that has ever happened. It never happened before. It hasn't happened since. We can't even understand what it means. We don't know what the world was like before creation. Yesh me'ayin, Hashem created something from nothing. So says the Kuzari, why doesn't Hashem introduce Himself with that more impressive, more impressive uh, component of His resume? You always put the more impressive thing on top of your resume. Nochi Hashem lokecha, you should say, I created the world, not who took you out of Egypt. So what does the Kuzari answer? How many of us were there when he created the world? Some feel like so old we were there when he created the world, but none of us were there when he created the world. So we don't relate to it, we don't identify. Nobody was present, nobody paid witness. So we don't have direct testimony, we know it. We know it to be true. But what about the Exodus, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? How do we know that? Because my parents told me, who heard it from their parents, 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 who were there were there. It's much more personal when Hashem says, you remember the story that has been passed down through the generations that you know. You know because you heard it from your parents. Like any other truth that you know, you know this to be true. You remember that story? Nice to meet you. I'm the God behind that story. And that's much more personal and relatable to us. And so these parshios are an exercise in emuna. They're the ultimate emuna sefer, emuna musashmuz, emuna shir, a reminder that we don't live life randomly and chance but everything is by design. The Rebona Shalom himself is orchestrating events. So let's do a quick overview, quick overview of the Parsha and get into our specific Pesukim. So we pick up with the next set of, of plagues. First of all, the Parsha begins, Bo El Paro, not Lech El Paro. All the commentaries point out. Hashem doesn't say go. He says, Nu, Bo, come. So you can explain it one of two ways. Either Hashem is going with, Hashem doesn't send us on a shlichus on our own, but He comes with. When we have a mission, a charge, a purpose, something to do in life, we're not on our own. We're not agents doing the mission on our own. He doesn't say lech, he says bo. He says, I'm coming with you. 
Well, the alternative is, remember we studied last week when he recruits Moshe, and he says, this is the sign that I'm sending you, we are shliach. How can we be God's shliach? How can we be God's agent? A shliach represents, and a shliach resembles the person who sent him. So how can any of us be God's agent? God is infinite, omnipotent. We are finite. So how can we be God's agent? So what's the answer? Because God is in us. We are Tzelem Elohim. So you're right. If I have to be comparable in order to be somebody's agent, Shliach Shlodim Kamoso. That's why there's no Shlichus for those who can't, somebody's not Mitzuva in that Mitzvah, they can't be a Shliach for a person who is. Because there has to be a level of being comparable. So how can we be God's agent if we're not His equal? And the answer is not that we're God's equal, but there is God in us. We have a Tzelem Elohim in us. And if that's the case, maybe then you can explain Bo El Paro is not Lech El Paro, it's not go to Paro, but it's Bo El Paro. Hashem says, come, we're going. I, where's God? In us. The Tzelem Elohim, the godliness in us, our unique, distinct, inimitable soul, the godliness in us, the expression of God, is what gives us a charge and a mission in this world and in this lifetime that we have to fulfill. Parsha already tells us, God forecasts everything that's going to happen. It's really impressive. If you think Babe Ruth calling the home run to center field was impressive before he hit it, the Rebbe Shalom says, I want to tell you what's about to unfold. Here's how they're going to react. Here's what you're going to do every year. You're going to tell the story. He forecasts everything. In the beginning of our Pasha, Hashem already tells us, Sipur. You know why I'm doing everything I'm doing? Uh, this is not a story I don't want you to tell. This is a story I want you to tell and tell and tell over and over and over again. And where do you have to deposit the story? Where should you tell it? In your children and in your grandchildren. And I'm going to designate a holiday that every year you're going to gather together. And the emphasis of the holiday is not to be a shmata because you did spring cleaning. The emphasis of the holiday is not to be a shmata because you ground your own gefilte fish that you had swimming in your bathtub because you couldn't buy it from the store. The emphasis of the holiday is I want you to tell this story. And why is it so critically important for children and grandchildren to hear this story? For the reason of the kuzari. Because when they feel balelos, it's at night. I don't see Hashem, I feel darkness depression, despondency, hopelessness. How do I know my life has meaning or purpose? Why is what's happening happening? How will I find the strength to endure and go forward? They will draw from that story that annually you whispered in their ear. Hopefully you didn't whisper it, you shouted it in their ear. Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim. Sipur is a very different mitzvah. Again, these are all different Torah for Pesach. But Sipur, the difference between Haggadah and Sipur, Amira, Haggadah, and Sipur. Are you saying it? Are you telling it? Or Sipur? When is something personal to us? When it's a story. When we hear a story, we're much more, we're much more moved. And that is the purpose for which Hashem is doing this entire thing. For which Hashem is doing this entire thing. Vayom Rav Dei Paro Elav. Paro's servants tell him. Misalavitchik has an amazing insight on those words. Vayomer Avdei Paro Elav. Paro's servants tell him. The term Avdei Paro suggests that these people were slaves of Paro. The very identity was based on their allegiance to Paro. In contrast, what do we sing at the Seder table? 
right after the four questions are asked, how does the father respond? How did the household respond? Avadim hayinu, avadim hayinu. We don't say avde paro, avadim hayinu liparo. What's the difference between being avde paro and avadim hayinu liparo? Avadim hayinu liparo means we were forced into slavery. We reported to paro. He was our oppressor. He was our persecutor. But it didn't change our identity. Our identity was we were free people. Our identity, we're not avadim leparo, but avadayhem. We're avadim only to Hashem. So a person, we spoke about this last week, we could be deprived of our physical freedom and yet have a spiritual existential freedom. And there are countless examples. Most famously, Viktor Frankl's seminal work on man's search for meaning was the experience of being imprisoned in a concentration camp, lacking a physical liberty but having freedom to define his own identity, his own self, and his life. The Rav doesn't reference Viktor Frankl, but it's the same insight. The difference between Avde Paro and Avadim Hayinu Liparo. Although we were in servitude to Paro, we were never identified with our taskmaster. The Medrash indicates every Shabbos the enslaved Jews would read from the scrolls which foretold that they would be redeemed. Even during their servitude, they believed in their ultimate redemption. And I think that that's very relevant for us where we sometimes confuse how we earn a living with, who we, with living. We confuse what we do with who we are. And the two don't go together. How we earn a living is not living. And what we do is not who we are. And the difference between avadim, leparo, sometimes we are in servitude to our job, where life places certain obligations or responsibilities on us, and we can accept them and perform them. But that doesn't have to define who we are. And in this one insight, this little comment, the difference between Avde Paro and Avadim Hayinu Liparo is Viktor Frankl's entire thesis, but is also, I think, the most empowering thing in our lives. That circumstances don't have to define us. Whatever the circumstances we're presented with, some who feel oppressed by the ruthless work that they have to do, some who are caretakers for a loved one, and that becomes consuming, all-consuming at that period of their life, some who are in that sandwich generation, where that's defining them now, there are all kinds of, whether it's professional, personal, relationship, health, that we are experiencing, and while it's something we're going through, it doesn't have to become us. We can remain avadim leparo, but not avde paro. Yes, right now, that's what's asked of me or I have to do, but it doesn't have to be who I, who I become. Paro keeps meeting with them, and then he uh, chases them out. Some I actually skipped. Paro has this very bizarre discussion. He says, fine, you want to go for three days? You could go. Who's going? And Moshe says, who's going? The old, the young, sons, daughters, our pets, our cats, our cattle. We're all going. It's going to be a festival, a joyous day for Hashem. The Kliyaka and the Ramban explain what's going on in that conversation. What's going on is Paro says... You want religious rights and religious freedom? You want a three-day exemption to go perform some religious experience? Okay, who are your priests? Who are your clergy? Submit their names. And then I'll let the religious leaders, the clergy, the priests, I'll let them go. To which Moshe turns to me and says, you don't understand our religion. Our religion doesn't delegate to others. We don't have religious fulfillment through some clergy or pastors or priests. 
We're all invested in this, young and old. This is equal for every one of us. A rabbi has no more responsibility religiously than a layman. A tamachacham, a scholar, we're all equal in our obligation and mitzvahs, our responsibility to study Torah, to live Torah. This is something universal for the Jewish people. Religion, unlike other religion, it's not that the average person has no responsibility and you fulfill it. We've delegated it to the religious leaders who have to live holy, abstinent, righteous lives and I just delegate, I pay my membership and I'm good. We believe that we're all equal. So I saw the Imre Chaim, who I like to quote every week lately, the Vishnu um, Rebbe says, Why does Moshe end? We're all going. What do you mean, who's going? We're all going. The young, the old, sons, daughters, even our pets, we're all going. And then he ends, it's a, it's a holiday for us. Why is the ending? Where is Chag Hashem Lanu? So the vision it says, when it's Banim Ubanas Holchem Bederach Ha'avos, when we achieve Bivanenu Bizkeinenu, when we achieve Binarenu Bizkeinenu, when we have intergeneration, when you have succession, when you have continuity, Chag Hashem Lanu. So in both directions. There is nothing more gratifying to parents and grandparents, Kenai Nahara, great grandparents, than seeing their progeny on the path of Torah and mitzvos. That's a chag, that's a yantif. You want something to be happy about? Okay, your back hurts and your knee hurts and your hips hurt and you're on a fixed income and there's all kinds of challenges in life. But if your eneklach, if your progeny are on the path of Torah and mitzvos, chag Hashem lanu. Oh, it's a geshmak yantif. You should be making yantif every day. But the inverse is also true. How do we achieve binarenu, bivanenu, bivnosenu? How can the bizkeinenu, how does the older generation achieve that the younger generation is walking in the same path? If all of this, if walking on that path is a burden and is a pain and it's shvert sezayin a yid and I wish I didn't have to, then they're out of here. But if you want them to neilech, to walk together yachtav, if you want to be together, if Judaism is a geshmaka holiday, it's a yantif. Every day is a yantif. I love being a Jew. It's a holiday. It's incredible. Every day. It's almost two bishvat. And then it's going to be Purim Katan, and then Purim, and then there's nothing better than Pesach. Who doesn't love Pesach? Who doesn't love Pesach? Don't do spring cleaning. Follow my, this is my polemic every year, follow, not my, the Shulchan Aruch, the halachic responsibilities for cleaning. Come to the table not like a shmata, but like royalty, like monarchy, and make it a yontif. It's unbelievable. Then four, nine days later, it's Shavuos. And we get to count every day, Svir Saomer. It's geschmack to be a Yid. It's amazing. My 10-year-old nephew made a siyum on Seder Moed this past Sunday. It's extraordinary enough. I thought I was depressed when I saw my 10-year-old nephew made a siyum on Seder Moed. Mishnayas, he knows it all. Cold, that was depressing. This morning I saw news that a 19-year-old Bachar in, in Modiyin Elite in Israel made a siyum bi'iyan on Kolashas Kula and was tested on it by heart and he passed. All he got was a bottle of wine from the Biala Rebbe, but, I mean, bottle of wine, maybe something more, but, okay, but uh, if I wasn't depressed enough. So, when my 10-year-old nephew made the him on Sunday morning, he and his friends and his wonderful father, they sang and danced to Geshmak to be a Yid. What a beautiful scene, what a beautiful sight, I have a video of it. 10-year-old jumping up and down, not Geshmak to go on yeshiva vacation, not Geshmak last night at a college football game, not geshmak to have an iPhone, not geshmak, geshmak to be a yid, 
should see them dancing and jumping and singing in a circle. Okay, they were about to have Dunkin' Donuts. It's Geschmack to have Dunkin' Donuts. But Geschmack to be a Yid, that's Chag Hashem Lanu. So when this Kenenu, I'm not calling my brother-in-law Zakein in this context, but this Kenenu, when the older generation makes it a Chag Hashem Lanu, it's Geschmack to be a Yid, then Binarenu, Bivanenu, Bizkenenu, Neleich. So when we look back, and, and if unfortunately, God forbid, one does not have that nachas, there are people who live a Chag Hashem Lanu, and due to circumstances that, that's not their own, there's no blame, Hashem works in incredible ways, we have no idea why, I'm not assigning blame to anyone. But, let me just say it in the opposite, to inspire us. If we live Chag Hashem Lanu, we'll have no regrets. If we try to give a model of how Geshmak it is to be a Yid. I give it it's late, there's so much, such a long parsha, so much. Vayigarish Osam Me'ez Pinei Paro. He chased them out from Pinei Paro. We've had Moshe and Aaron being dismissed from Paro, but now it's from Pinei Paro. So what does it mean, it's being dismissed from Pinei Paro? There's a contempt that Paro has. He can't even look at them. He's, he has contempt for them. But the Helega Vizhna to the Imre Chaim, who I've become a big fan of, I'm not going to try to read to these in the Yiddish. I'm not even sure I understand the Yiddish, but I think I do. Where he says, Vayigarish Hashem Me'ez Pinei Paro, he says, Pinei Paro, the Paro, what's Vayigarish Hashem? Moshe and Aaron are out of there. What are they getting away from? Paro's Ponim. Paro's got a Fabisan upon him. The Ponim that he's wearing. Paro at that moment, it's another way of saying contempt. It's how you say contempt in Yiddish. upon His angry, his depressed, his miserable, his, his impure, his, his horrible punim. Such a gishmak of word. No? What made them flee? What they run away from? Not Paro. It's not that they were running away from Paro, they were afraid of the powerful figure, what he might do. What were they running away from? Pene, his ponim. He had such a fabisan upon him. Nobody wants to be around those with a fabisan upon him. You've got to change it. We're responsible for our ponim. Rabbi Salanta famously said that our face is a Rishus Harabim. It's not a Rishus HaYachid. Stay home and only look in the mirror and your face only belongs to you. But assuming you interact with other human beings in the world then our faces are Rosh Hashanah And we have a different punim that we could put on. And the punim that we put on has an impact on others. So Dr. Christakis, who did some research, and he proved that the same way that yawning is contagious, which will be evident some point during this year, at some point next week when we have the coffee and tea, then it won't be. But for this week still, there's no coffee. So just like yawning is contagious physiologically, it's, it's been proven. One person yawns, it's contagious. So he proved that smiling is also contagious. If a person smiles, it catches on. Smiling is contagious. What we do with our punim, we're responsible for. As I've shared several times from Menachem ben Zion Zaks, the Heliga Menachem Zion, he says, that's what it means, Pnei Shabbos Nekabla. When we sing Lechadodi Friday night, we're not talking about Pnei Shabbos, I'm greeting the face of Shabbos. Pnei Shabbos, what it means is, I'm putting on my Shabbos punim. All week long, I wear a weekday punim. And my weekday ponim looks a lot like Paro's ponim. My weekday ponim is yelling at the kids or yelling at my spouse or has no patience. My weekday ponim is miserable and not getting a good night's sleep. My weekday ponim has to go to work and has so much to get done. I have my vachadik ponim, my weekday ponim, and it looks awfully like Paro's ponim. And Penei Shabbos Nekabla, what we're singing is, Penei Shabbos Nekabla, I'm putting on my Shabbos ponim. 
when I learned that piece in the Menachem Tzion, it changed the way I sing Lachadodi. Every Friday night, I, I have this picture, this image of putting on the Shabbos Ponim. Come home, smile. A weight's been lifted from your shoulders. All the wrinkles and creases are gone. And you're able to, no stress lines anymore. You're able to just relax. The serenity, the peace of Shabbos. He explains that's what Tosos means. When a couple gets married, Sheva Brachas, in order to recite Sheva Brachas for the seven nights, you need Panam Chadashos. You need people who weren't at the meal at the wedding. Tosva says, that's true during the weekday. Shabbos? Shabbos is Panam Chadashos. Tosva says, Shabbos is Panam Chadashos. You can even recite Sheva Brachas even if everyone at the meal was already at the wedding. Says the Menachem Tzion, what does Tosva mean that Shabbos is Panam Chadashos? It means the very same people have put on their Shabbos Panam. Oh, you were at the wedding? But that was the vachadikah you at the wedding. Can't believe it's so late, they didn't even start, they haven't served the meal, and the music is so loud, and I can't believe they put me at this table, and the ride home, I had to pay for my own valet parking. You wear it your weekday punim the whole meal, the whole wedding. Shabbos comes, you're celebrating the same couple, but now you're celebrating them with your Shabbos punim. So it's a whole new you. So you could recite Sheva Brachos. That's the Pshad he says in Tosos. So all this is in contrast. Moshe and Aaron had to get out of there. They couldn't bear Paro's fabisan upon him. They couldn't bear to see his horrible pun him, his negative face. So they ran, they fled, they had to get out of there. We are responsible for the pun him that we put on. The Jewish people are commanded on their way out. Oi, so much to say. Oi, such a crass. Daber no be'azne'am. Speak in the ears of the people. Ve'ishalu ishreis me'ishre'eu. And they should borrow one from another. Classically, I say this word every year. Classically, this is understood to mean the Jewish people have to borrow items from the Egyptians on their way out. And we've always been bothered. Borrowing? That's like someone says, can I borrow a tissue? You hope they're not just borrowing that tissue. We weren't returning what we borrowed from the Egyptians. So what do you mean, borrow, vayishalu? Also, why does it say na? Na is lashon bakasha, please. These people murdered, killed us, exterminated us for 210 years. When we needed a tissue on the way out, we said, can we please borrow a tissue? And what do you mean, re'eyu? Whenever we see, use the word re'echa, re'eyu in Torah, it refers to re'eyu ben mitzvos, it's a fellow Jew. So the Egyptians over here all of a sudden are re'eyu? So says the Grod, there's only gone. We're misreading the whole Pasuk. Jewish people weren't told to borrow from the Egyptians on the way out. You know who this is directed to? No, please. Re'eyu. Can't reply to a mitzvah. He has to be a Jew. The Jews were obligated and responsible to lend to one another. God says, you want me to take you out of Egypt? No problem. I need you to do something first. I need you to lend to one another. I need you to borrow from one another. No. Daber no. Re'eyu. Why? Why? Because Hashem says, if I want to take you out of slavery and you want to achieve freedom, freedom is the ability to share what you have. Freedom is the willingness to lend. Freedom is the capacity to do chesed. So, olam chesed yibaneh. The world exists on chesed. God says, you want me to take you out of Mitzrayim and build a whole new world of you? Build a nation, a people? You need to exhibit the capacity to do chesed. Daber Speak to one another. Say, please borrow and lend from one another, and then I'll take you out. And says the Chafetz Chaim, building on this gra, that's what we say every day in our davening. Nachisa bechastecha, amzu ga'alta. Nachisa bechastecha. Normally we say bechastecha, we think it's Hashem's chesed. 
Chavetz Chaim reinterprets it. Chasach is not Hashem's chesed. Hashem says, Amzu Ga'alta. Why did I take you out? What was your worthiness? What was the catalyst for my taking you out? Nachisa Bechastach. Once you prove the capacity to do chesed, that you could have loving kindness one with the other, then I was ready to take you out. When does he take us out? We've discussed this in the past. Was it around midnight? Exactly at midnight. The importance of precision within mitzvos. Jews are people that have a great time awareness. We spoke about this in Siddur snippets last week. The first of the birchas hashachar, lahavchin, ben yom ven laila, hanasan sechvi, binam. What do we care? To distinguish between night and day, this is a bracha on time awareness. We understand what time it is. We understand the difference between day and night. What's the very next thing? Sfarno famously says on this, we say this every year also, that why? Why is this the first mitzvah in the entire Torah? We just celebrated Rosh Chodesh yesterday. And what determines Rosh Chodesh? It's not the Jewish funeral home and the calendar they give out. What determines Rosh Chodesh? Not Hashem. What determines Rosh Chodesh and with it sets the month in motion which determines when Yom Kippur is? Hashem says Shabbos is every seventh day. When the holidays fall out, it's not from Hashem, it's from Beisden, it's from man. Why is it the very first mitzvah which is given? Says the Sforno, you know what it means to be free? To be in control of your own time. A slave's time is owned by his master. A slave has to report to his master. A slave has no discretion over his own or her own time. Freedom is the capacity to own our own time. So I once wrote an article about this. When we live with this terrible notion of Jewish time, when we're always late, when we procrastinate, when we're lazy, when time is a suggestion and it doesn't mean anything, we are enslaved. We're enslaved to apathy and complacency and laziness and procrastination. But when we understand time with precision, when we have a time awareness, which is what mitzvahs are there to reinforce and promote, then that is timeliness is godliness. Okay, Parsha continues. The designation of the animal, which we're going to come back to, designating a lamb which gets slaughtered and saves the Jewish people. And we have the 10th Makkah of Makkah's Bechoros, 10th and final plague. We already are told, and this is what we covered last year, if anyone wants to listen, that even before we ran out of Egypt in a hurry and didn't have time for the bread to rise, Hashem already told us that the way you're going to celebrate this holiday every year is by eating matzah, which is absolutely backwards. <laughs> Chronologically, it doesn't work. If you tell me I commemorate an event that already happened by something that happened in it, I make sense. But if before it ever happened, you tell me this is how you're going to commemorate it, so there's something much more fundamental about matzah and Pesach. In other words, long before we ran out in haste, and didn't have time for bread to rise, Hashem says every year you're going to commemorate this holiday, this experience, by eating matzah. What's matzah? Oh, you won't have time for the bread. Well, just give us more time for the bread to rise. There's something about alacrity and speed that is intrinsically connected to freedom and is why matzah is the symbol of this holiday. For more on that, it's how we ended last year. The Jewish people did what they were told with tremendous courage, tremendous bravery. They took the deity of the Egyptians they tied it to the bedpost, they slaughtered it, they sprinkled the blood on the doorpost. We're going to come back to that in a moment. We have the contrast between what Hashem did to the firstborn Egyptians and then what Hashem does, the relationship of our firstborn with Hashem. And then we end the parsha with the notion of tefillin. The way we commemorate Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is with tefillin. Chassam Sofer asked a question, is tshuva? 
Chassam Sofer says, women are obligated, are they obligated in the four cups or exempt from the four cups? Four cups is a classic time-bound mitzvah. We have the four cups on Seder night, one night, two nights in diaspora a year. It's a time-bound mitzvah. Should women be obligated or exempt? They're exempt. Why? I'm sorry, they, they should be exempt because it's time-bound, but they are obligated. Why are they obligated? They too were part of the miracle, and like Megillah and Hanukkah, whenever they're part of the miracle, then they're obligated in the mitzvah, even if it's time-bound. Ask the Chassam Seifer, the end of our parsha, the Torah says, why do you wear tefillin? Because of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So, were the women part of that miracle? That's why they're drinking the Dalad Kosos. Why aren't women obligated to wear tefillin? Why doesn't Afhein Ayubo obligate women to wear tefillin? We're not going to give you the answer now. Let's go to the Pesukim that we have to go through. We discussed it in an afternoon kolal shir. You can find it online on Yu Torah. But in a shir in the afternoon kolal on Afhein Ayubo we gave an answer to that question. A couple answers to that question. We're going to start from Perakid Bey's Pasuk Chaf Aleph, chapter 12, verse 21. Aren't you impressed? I left 20 minutes today to go through Psukim. Turned over a new leaf, my New Year's resolutions. Perakid Bey's Pasuk Chaf Aleph, chapter 12, verse 21. Where are we in the uh, Torah, in the Parsha? We are, we are, where God has forecast this holiday, which will commemorate the experience they're undergoing right then. And he says, now I have something I need you to do. Take an animal, tie it to the doorpost, slaughter it, sprinkle the blood, and, uh, and then I'm going to come through. I've got some stuff to do. <clears throat> Moshe calls to all those who came and he says, What does the word mishchu mean? To pull. In fact... The Balaturim says, Mishchu Khulachem Tzon, Remez Lebehema Daka, Shinikneis Bemeshicha. Mishnah Kedushin tells us we have different modes or methods of acquisition, of transactions. How can I acquire something from you? Sometimes, Hagbah, we lift, you go to a wedding, you see the rabbi makes the chasal and lift the handkerchief for the pen and the sound. Hagbah, lifting, Mesira, leading, Meshicha, pulling. Kenyan Chatzah, Kenyan Agav, we have all kinds of Kenyanim transactions. So the Balaturim cutely says, Mishchu Ukechula Chamson, this is the source that Meshicha works on Son, which is a Behema Daka. Fine. If you didn't follow that, come back to me now. Mishchu means to pull, draw forth. The art scroll translates it as draw forth. In other words, Hashem is saying, I want you to go take an animal. I want you to go take the lamb. It's time to take it and it's time to slaughter it. Where should you find it? Mishchu. What is Mishchu? Zakhtar Ashi. Mishyeshlotzon. Yimshach Mishalo. If you have a flock, so go take one of your little animals. Go take a little lamela and bring it. Ukechu. Mishyeinlo. Yikach minashuk. If you own it, if you have your own flock, now where did slaves have their own livestock? I don't know. It's a good question. If you own your own, take one of your own. If you don't own your own, go buy one in the shuk. Why Mishchu? Why this language that you have to go drag it? You have to go draw it. So the Ramban says, because where do the Jewish people live? They're living in Goshen. So you got to go all the way to Goshen and bring it, and bring it here. Mishchu. Ba'avur ha'yos tzonam rochuk mo'od mehem be'eretz Goshen. Kito avas mitzrayim korea tzon. Because Mitzrayim had no tolerance for shepherds of tzon. 
אמר כחולכם 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 איש סלע בייס אבו סלע בייס שחטו הפסח בין רביים so that's why it's מישכו this unusual word of מישכו go and get this animal what do you do with the animal then we'll come back and look more closely at the פסוקים what do you do לקחתם אגודה סייזו וטבלתם בדם אשר בסף והגעתם למשקוף ואשתי מזוזוס בין אדם אשר בסף ואתם עושי צו איש מפסח בייסו עד בוקר what are you doing take a bundle of hyssop and dip take the hyssop and take the blood So you're going to shech the animal and collect its blood in a basin. Then you're going to take some hyssop, some branches, and you're going to use that, dip it in the blood in the basin, and then you're going to touch the two doorposts and the lintel on top with some of the blood that's in the basin. No person should leave the entrance of the house. It's not safe to leave all night. So you're going to slaughter the animal. The blood will go into the basin, take some hyssop, dip it in. Is it reminiscent of any? What looks like hyssop that we dip into something? We mentioned this last week or two weeks ago, or last year or two years ago. Karpas. The Rabbeinu Manoach and the Rambam says, Karpas is Kisonas Pasim. We begin the Seder by remembering how did we get into Egypt to begin with. Because Yosef's brothers took his coat and dipped it into blood. Just like we are commemorating here, the parallel, we're dipping into blood. They dipped his coat into blood to present to Yaakov to say an animal has killed Yosef. So we remember, we begin the Seder, Karpas, Pasim, Ketonis Pasim. We begin the Seder by remembering it was Sinas Chinam that began it all. So that's this, exactly this exercise we're going through. Take Hyssop, dip it in the base in the blood, and we mistakenly think that it was like the mezuzah. It was on one doorpost, it was on all three. The, uh, one of the commentaries, I think the Orachimer says, it's like the shape of a yud. All the, the arms, the branches of the yud. So it's on both of the doorposts and the lintel on top as well. And when Hashem is passing through Egypt, He'll see the blood, He'll see its identifying mark, it's a Jewish home, and He will not enter your home in order to carry out the devastation that He will be visiting upon the Egyptians. And observe this thing as a uh, law for you, and decree for you and for your children forever. And then when you enter the land of Israel, when I take you out of here, there was no 40-year delay that was anticipated at this time. So when we get out of here and we go right into Egypt, you're going to commemorate this. And when, fast forward, your children will say, what is going on here? What are you commemorating What is all this to you? When they say, what is this all about? You'll give an answer. Familiar with this answer? This is a sacrifice of a Pesach to God. Why? Pesach, Pesach. Because we're sacrificing the Pesach because he was Pesach. He skipped over the Jewish homes in Mitzrayim. When he, when he slaughtered the Egyptians, but our homes he saved. And the people heard all this. Oh, Rashi says, Why did they collapse and bow down and thank Hashem? So here's, Hashem tells Moshe, Moshe tells the people, here's the deal. You ready? Take that lamb that you said, go get a lamb, set it aside, slaughter it, call its blood in a basin. Take his sub, dip it. You're going to, Touch all the doorposts. Hashem comes and He wreaks havoc in Egypt. Your homes will be safe. Don't leave. Not safe to leave that night. Stay at home that night. Like Nitalnach. Stay at home that night. Don't go out at night. And 
Uh, and just know that when you come into Israel, don't think this will just be an ancient part of history. Every year forward, you're going to commemorate what we're going through right now. But in a few years, your children who weren't there are going to start saying, Mavu dazos lachem. What's with all the scrubbing and the cleaning? What's with the price per pound of hand matzah? What's going on? Mavu dazos lachem. What is this all about? Oh, you're going to tell them it's because God skipped over us and we skipped over them. And what do the people do? They collapse and they say, Oh, what fantastic news. First of all, we're getting out of here. Second of all, Gula, we're, we're going into Israel. And third of all, what was the third piece of fantastic news? Habanim Shiulahem. Ah, our children are Eneklach, Ura Eneklach. We're going to have fantastic progeny. It's amazing. Ask the Parshish Drochem, the Mishnah Melech. Who asks Mahavodazos Lachem? Four sons at the, at the, uh, at the Seder. Four, four sons of ten. There's a fifth son. He doesn't even make it to the Seder table. We've talked about that in the past. But there are four sons who make it to the Seder table. Which is the one who asked Mahavodazos Lachem that you're so excited to hear the news that you're going to have a son who's going to ask this question? You walk away with a skip in your step. You're clicking your heels. You're so happy. You bow down. Wow, what great news. I'm going to have such fantastic grandchildren. Who asked Mahavodazos Lachem? The Russia, the wicked son. I'm going to have a wicked son. Fantastic! What's the fantastic? What are they bowing down? What's the joy and excitement over having a wicked grandson? So we'll see if we have time enough to come back to that. But let's go back and look at these pesukim. That's That was the goal where to get to today. Let's see if we get there. Let's look at these pesukim. Mishchu u'kechu lachem. Go and drag and get this animal. If you own one, take one. If you don't own, go to the shuk and buy one. And how do you designate them? You know what word we see over and over again in our parsha? Bias. Beis avos. Pesach is about the home. I'm not talking about where you celebrate it, but with whom you celebrate it. Some people have their home in their home. Some people take their home to a hotel. But it means with your home, with your family. Not only with your family. This may be the topic of Shabbos. I've got this morning, I was thinking maybe this would be the topic of the Shabbos of Drasha. The notion of, unlike other mitzvahs, Pesach has to be eaten bechabura, with a group, with a unit, a designated unit. You've got to sign up in advance. So who is the chabura? Who's coming on the empty nest cruise? You've got to be a chabura in order to eat the carbon Pesach. What do I mean? When I shake my lulav, I don't say, here's my chabura for Hoshanas. These ten guys are the ones I'm going to walk around. We're going to knock each other in the head with our lulav. These are my ten guys to poke each other's eyes out. We're going to walk around and do Hoshamas together. I don't designate this as my minion, this is my group. I just do my Dalit Minim. I carry my lulav and esrog. I do Hoshamas. I knock people randomly in the eye. So why is it when it comes to carbon Pesach, I need a Chabura. This is a mitzvah. has to be b'chabura, a mitzvah that needs to be with a, with a unit. What does that say about freedom? What does that say about, about Pesach? What does it say about the birth of our peoplehood? So we take the hyssop and we dip it. And we dip it. And you can't go out that night. Why can you not go out that night? Rashi tells us, don't go out that night. What do you mean? Aren't I safe? I put the blood in my doorpost. Why can't I go for a shpatzir down the block? What about Starbucks? I need my coffee. Says Rashi, Magid Shemeacher Shemitna Rishus Lamashkes Lechabel Eino Mavchin Ben Sadik LeRasha. Very difficult theological comment, but Rashi is quoting Chazal who tell us that when permission has been given to the angel of death, he doesn't discriminate between those who deserve it and don't. Once permission has been granted, 
And night is the time that terrorists and troublemakers and thieves and bandits and no good nicks go out. So stay at home tonight. Stay at home tonight. That's the origin. People think Nacht. Every year I have people who sincerely want to know, am I allowed to learn Torah tonight? Some people just pass for themselves. They're machmir every night. <laughs> Maybe, you know, Yontav Shani Shagolius. Maybe I'm off by, so every night I'll be machmir the whole year not to learn Torah. But the custom of not learning Torah in Nacht, its origin probably was in the fact that the Christians among whom we lived went to midnight mass, often had a l'chaim on the way there, a couple l'chaims on the way out, and if a Jew were on the streets that night, it didn't bode well for that Jew. People didn't have svarim at home, they only had svarim in the base medrash, so the custom of not learning that night wasn't that there's a prohibition of learning that night, it was very pragmatic. If you go out that night, you're going to encounter somebody who could cost you your life. So Talmud Torah is going to get kulam, but it's not Yahari Yavor. You don't have to die for learning Torah. We said stay home. Others see more mystical reasons to nitelnach. So this is reminiscent of it. Moshe is instructing based on Hashem, don't go out tonight. Kevan, shanitan, rishus, lamashus, lachabel. Once the angel of death, God has released him and God has given permission, go out and wreak havoc. So just hunker down, hunker down. This applies, I'm not, I'm not even touching this with a gazillion foot pole, but whether it's with the Holocaust or understanding how natural disasters take the lives of innocent people, there is a notion within Jewish theology that sometimes God releases a power and force, and when the power and force is released, it no longer is distinguishing based on merit. If you are in its way, you can succumb to its impact and its devastation. So that is this Rashi. Stay home. Because otherwise, well, what do you mean? Because Baruch promised the Jews they won't get injured. Why can't they walk around the streets? If only the non-Jewish, if only the Egyptian water turned to blood and the, you know, an Egyptian and Jew are standing next to each other. Each has a Zephyr Hills bottle of water they're sipping from. The Egyptians turned to blood, the Jews didn't. So if God can make that happen, why can't He spare the Jewish firstborn even if they're walking on the street? That's what Rashi's telling us. Once this angel of death has permission, He does it. So Sif Sechacham is bothered. I don't understand. This Makkah, the 10th plague, unlike the others, was performed by whom? Kosh An earthquake, a hurricane, a tsunami, Nazis, Yemach Shemam Vizichram, maybe, I don't even want to say I can understand, maybe I can understand that when that force is unleashed, it doesn't distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. But a Kosh Baruch Hu Bechvodu didn't delegate this Makkah he did on his own God can't go through Egypt and still distinguish who gets who's a casualty so says the Sif Sechacham quoting the Nachlis Yankiv that what Rashi means is not that God can't distinguish but since the environment that night is going to be one of utter devastation and destruction Thieves and bandits and low lives are going to be out in force, and they are the ones who won't distinguish. But the other forces that are out that night won't be able to distinguish, and therefore hunker down, don't go out, don't go out that night. Okay, good. Good. Good, good. Mishka ukechu. What does this mean, Mishka ukechu? So, these words go and drag an animal and take the animal. And you're going to then slaughter, dip in the blood, and so on and, and so forth. 
understanding this Pasuk is so critically important to understanding what we're doing with Chametz and what we're doing to celebrate the holiday of Pesach. Chametz is arch enemy number one. I don't have to tell you. We are going to search and destroy, utterly obliterate. Chametz, 51 weeks a year is good, unless you're on a carb-free diet or you're a celiac. But one week a year, Chametz is the devil. It's evil, search and destroy, it's enemy number one. Why? What's so bad? What's so bad about Chametz? So Chametz is leaven. The Gemara already quotes Chazal, that the leaven, the Chametz, the idea of Chametz is, is the Yetzahara. The Yetzahara, the id, the ego, is inflated like leaven, like bread. And what we're really ridding ourselves of is our ego, is our id, is our sense of self is the Yetzirah, which is inflated inside all of us. So this is evident. So what are we doing when we get rid of Chametz? We're doing the exact same process. Mishcha u'kechu lachem The Medrash in Shmos Rabbah, Tezayin, says, Dover acher, mishcha u'kechu lachem tzon, zehu shakoslov yevoshu kol ovdei pesel. V'shash, amal ha-kosh baruch l'moshe l'shkod ha-pesach, amal ha-moshe, ribon olam, ha-dover zehech ha-niyechol ha-hasos, iyata yodea sh'atzon elohayhem shal mitzrim heim, don't you know that this animal is the deity of the God, of the Egyptians? God says, Moshe, I'm not letting you out of here until mishku u'kechu. You know what the catalyst of redemption was? The key to unlock the redemption was? The secret to redemption and remains the secret to our redemption is mishku u'kechu. You have to go slaughter the idolatry around you. Rid yourself of the idolatry. So the Mitzrim saw their firstborns were killed and their gods were slaughtered and they could do nothing. That is exactly what we are doing. And if you look, the Balaturim says, that's why the Torah places the prohibition of Chametz right next to the prohibition of Avodah Zarah in the Torah. The two psukim are adjacent to one another. There's a prohibition to eat Chametz on Pesach, and there's a prohibition to bow down to idols. Why are they next to each other? To tell us that just like Avodah Zarah is prohibited for us to have any benefit from, so too Chametz. And the Yerushalmi as well creates this comparison. Rav Menachem Kasher, in his Haggadah Shlema, I spoke about him last week, with the fifth cup, the language of the Hevesi, which he argued to the Rabbanut should be introduced now that we experienced the miracle of the modern state of Israel, remember last week I contrasted his introduction to Sefer Shmos Torah Shlema when he was enduring and witnessing the horrors of the Holocaust and described that what the Jews of Europe was going through was worse than what the Jews went through in Egypt. And fast forward, by the time he publishes his Agada Shlema, he's living in the miraculous state of Israel, and now he's arguing that we should drink a fifth cup at the Seder of Vevesi. So Rav Menachem Kasher has an essay in the back of his Haggadah Shlema, and in that essay he proves there are at least six, if not more, similarities between the laws of Chametz and the laws of idolatry, the laws of Avodah Zarah. Comparisons or common themes between the two that they have that are different than the rest of mitzvahs. So very quickly, both are forbidden not only to utilize, but to own. You can't own Chametz and Pesach even if you don't eat it. You can't own Avodah Zarah even if you don't worship it. Number two, how do you get rid of them? Sreifa. Both need to be burnt. Tashbisu, Chametz, you destroy, according to one opinion, through Sreifa. And Avodah Zarah needs to be destroyed, you burn it. Number three, both are Asr Bahana. You're not allowed to benefit from it. You can't even give it to a non-Jew. You can't give it to an animal. Number four, both are a Koshu. Both are forbidden even in a negligible measure. Number five, both can be eradicated with nullification. 
Chametz we get rid of through Bittel, and Avodah Zarah you could be Mevatel. Number six, both of them require Bedika. You have to search and destroy for Chametz, and you have to search and destroy for Avodah Zarah. So what is this connection? Essentially the argument I'm building up to is that there is a connection between Chametz and Avodah Zarah, and our obsession, our OCD about getting rid of Chametz, is not really about Chametz. It's not about the leaven. It's not about the dough or the grain product. It's about what it symbolizes, what it stands for, and the physical exercise of getting rid of chametz is supposed to promote a spiritual journey to get rid of what the chametz symbolizes in our life. We're reenacting every year, essentially, mishchu ukechu, our pasuk. Take the animal, slaughter it, get rid of it. We are finding the idolatry in our own lives, the sense of ego, the sense of id, the sense of self-importance, the celebrities, the athletes, the money we worship, each of us can, can um, describe the Avodah Zarah that's personal to us, but the experience of getting rid of Chametz and the holiday of Pesach is all about getting rid of the Avodah Zarah and replacing it with more of a relationship with Hashem. That's what it is. Mishchu u'kechu. That's what the Medrash is likening it to. The Imre Pinchas, or Pinchas of Koritz writes, Ikor bir Chametzu bir Avodah Zarah. That the main point of getting rid of Chametz is getting rid of Avodah Zarah. When when Yoshio gets rid of Avodah Zarah, he calls it Pesach. The purpose of getting rid of Chametz is with the intention that we're getting rid of the Avodah Zarah. So that's why it has been suggested what we do in my home when B'dikas Chametz, I know we've got some time, Take a deep breath, we've got some time. But Bedikas Chametz comes, what we do in my home is, we, I ask the children to hide the ten pieces, and I ask them to see within each of the pieces they're hiding, and that we're going to find and obliterate, destroy, eliminate, in Avodah Zarah, a quality in their own life they want to get rid of. Who are they worshipping? What are they worshipping? What is their challenge? Is it uh, pop culture? Is it celebrity? Is it athlete? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it power? Is it likes? Is it follows? Is it viral? Is it... What is, what is the Avodah Zarah? Is it our ego, our arrogance, our hubris? What is the Avodah Zarah? Because that's essentially what, what it's telling us. We're getting rid of the Chametz, is getting rid of the Avodah Zarah. Mishchu u'kechu. We're imitating, we're emulating, we're following exactly the process of when Pesach first happened. God said, I'll be your God. I'll take you to the Harsinai. I'll give you the Torah. But first, I can't compete with the Avodah Zarahs in your life. So mishchu u'kechu. Go identify it, find it, and get rid of it. And then I'm happy to step into that spot. But I'm not going to compete. And so we do that every single year when we get rid. So Rav Pinchas of Kharaz is saying that Bir Chametz is Bir Avodah Zarah. The Haggadah Shleim is saying these six comparisons, Chametz has, the Chametz is the symbol of Avodah Zarah. It's the parallel of Avodah Zarah. It shares all these same unusual dinam, these same halachas, because it's telling us that Chametz is the symbol of Avodah Zarah, and our searching and destroying it is our effort to get rid of Avodah Zarah in our lives. So, why were they so happy to find out they were having children who were Shoyim? That's the Ben Harasha, Ma'avodah Zoslachem. Be a friend of BRS, come back next year and you'll find out. Have a great day.